Hello everyone, my name is Gerald Garrett, and before I get you guys into the wrestling highlights of the week, I just want to send a special condolences to the Eaton family. The Eaton family has lost a member of their family, professional wrestling star and legend himself, beautiful Bobby Eaton. Uh, Eaton was 62 years old, and his cause of death is still unknown, but he passed away this Thursday morning, it was reported by his sister, uh, she shared it on her Facebook, and she put, I never wanted to have the posters, but my little brother, beautiful Bobby Eaton, passed away last night. When I found out all the details, I will post them. She wrote to her followers along a photo of the two. And Bobby Eaton was a man that people call in the professional wrestling business one of the nicest, sweetest, kindest men that you will have ever find in that whole profession. And I don't know the man personally, but every wrestling legend would tell you the exact same thing. He was the nicest guy. He would get his shirt off his back. And every nice, like, thing that you would think. Niceness, it was just nice. Bobby Eaton was just nice. That is what professional wrestling legends would tell you. And people watching Bobby Eaton, because Bobby Eaton was a part of a tag team called the Midnight Express, uh, managed by Jim Cornette, and his first partner was Dennis Condry, which would, he once Dennis left, he ended up teaming up with a, another man called Sweet Stan Lane, and they will ultimately end up running roughshod all up in the Jim Crockett promotions, being the number two tag team a lot of the times by holding the USA uh, tag team titles before they got to the world tag team titles, because the world tag team titles were majority held by uh, the Four Horsemen until Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson left. And then that's whenever the Midnight Express really were able to shine as the top tag team in Jim Crockett promotion. But every time you would hear something about Bobby Eaton, people would just talk about how nice he was. And people watching professional wrestling would say that Bobby Eaton was the smoothest guy in the ring. He was able to perform wrestling moves easily he made it look effortlessly he was just so smooth and technically sound in the ring me I'm not a professional wrestler but a man that has watched a lot of his wrestling matches Dax Hardwood a member of the AEW roster he sent out a tweet talking about how whenever he was a part of WWE and NXT him and his partner Cash Wheeler and Elias will be in road trips and he'll have his portable DVD player and he'll have DVDs of Midnight Express DVDs and they'll just, and he would just be watching them on these road trips and he'll be studying how to take apart certain elements and equip them into their him and his partner's match and tweak it to uh tweak it to their fashion but the point is Bobby Eaton is one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time he is criminally underrated and people are going to start learning about Bobby Eaton now because a whole lot of professional wrestlers now, especially in this era of the internet and this era of people really wanting to learn about things of the past, will know who Bobby Eaton was. I knew Bobby Eaton off of Jim Cornette's promos of being the guy that was always silent and he was just the guy just right there while Stan Lane was just the guy being like the muscular, like pretty guy while Bobby Eaton was the guy that was there. No nonsense. And he'll get in the ring and he'll just do what he got to do. That was their dynamic as the Midnight Express. Jim Cornette would talk. Stan Lane would stand there, be pretty. 
Bobby Eaton was there not to be pretty. He was there to get the job done, and that's it. So what I'm trying to get at is this. Bobby Eaton will be missed by the professional wrestling world, and his uh, cause of death is still not known, but I just wanted to give my condolences out to the Eaton family. WWE has already done it on Twitter. NWA has given their condolences on Twitter. Uh, AEW has given their condolences on Twitter. And any professional wrestler that knows the game and knows the history of professional wrestling has given their condolences on Twitter. And I would be remiss as me, a guy covering professional wrestling, uh, wouldn't be giving my condolences on my platform, especially for a guy that has revolutionized tag team wrestling, especially with a team that I personally like watching, like FTR, uh, taking style points and taking things from their matches and tweaking them and making it into their own for their own matches. But anyway, I just want to give um, condolences to the Eaton family, and I just want to get that out the way before I start the show. And let's not... uh, Carry on any longer. Here's uh, Wrestling Highlights of the Week. Welcome back to Wrestling Highlights of the Week presented by My Two Cents Podcast hosted by G2 and I am G2. I am here to give you the wrestling highlights of the week for AEW, NXT, Raw, SmackDown, and Impact Wrestling. And at the end of the broadcast, before I let you guys go, I'll be talking about two major important releases that have been uh, happening through WWE, and the release are Bray Wyatt and Ric Flair, and I will get more into that at the end of the show, but let's start on with the first show that I will be uh, giving you highlights from, Monday Night Raw. At the beginning of Monday Night Raw, we had Bobby Lashley, and MVP, coming out to the ring, and their whole main point was to warn Goldberg not to challenge Lashley for his WWE Championship at SummerSlam. They understood that Lashley is the almighty and they were warning Goldberg that listen Goldberg is Goldberg he can demolish and destroy any man on that roster but he cannot step up to the almighty Bobby Lashley and think he's going to walk out of SummerSlam with the WWE Championship and Lashley never ever agreed to even give Goldberg a WWE Championship opportunity but as soon as MVP was talking about this Goldberg walks out to the ring and before he walks out to the ring his son is behind the barricade in the front row, and he hugs his son, and then he walks into the ring. That is a keynote right there. He hugs his son. You should know where I'm going with this. Goldberg goes into the ring, and he tells MVP point blank. He sees that MVP is scared of what Goldberg can do to Lashley, and he looks at Lashley, and he tells Lashley to his face that your manager looks scared, and you are scared. Your posture right now tells me that you are full of crap, and you are afraid of Goldberg. Now, Lashley didn't take too kind to this. He just started to muscle out and started to flex up and just started to look Goldberg all up in the face. And Goldberg just basically told him, listen, at SummerSlam, I'm coming to go grab that WWE Championship and beat you. And Goldberg's going to be Goldberg, whether he is 55, 65, or 105. Goldberg is Goldberg. Lashley is nothing compared to Goldberg. He walks out of the ring and Goldberg is now walking up the ramp and Lashley and MVP are just in the ring and Lashley is flustered. He is upset. He is balling up his fist and MVP spots Goldberg's son and he points at his son and he tells Lashley, that's Goldberg's son. 
So they get out of the ring. Lashley goes over to Goldberg's son and he tells him, your father is dead meat at SummerSlam. I'm going to murder your father. And MVP tells Lashley to hold on. Let me handle the kid. And Lashley goes right back into the ring and he starts getting on the second turnbuckle, starts to pose with the WWE Championship. In the midst of this, MVP is trash talking Goldberg's son about Goldberg. He's saying that your father's washed up, the Almighty's going to beat up your father, and yada, yada, yada. At the corner of his eye, you can see Goldberg rushing in to spear MVP. And Goldberg grabs his son and he starts walking to the back, and you hear Goldberg mouthing off as he's walking up the ramp. Don't you ever talk to my kid again or I will murder you. And that's how he ends with that segment with MVP on the ground and Lashley coming out to coming out of the ring to help out his business partner MVP get up and they start walking to the back. After this, you had the first match of the night, which was Drew McIntyre beating Indy Shear, both members of Indy Shear in a handicap match by disqualification. Jinder Mahal hits Drew McIntyre with steel chair and then he got Two more steel chairs to hand it to both members of Indy Sheer. And they cornered Drew McIntyre in the ring. And Drew realized that he was cornered by three men holding chairs, each separately. And Drew decided, you know what? I'm going to get my sword. And he grabs the sword and just straight up, straight up chases off Indy Sheer and Jinder Mahal. And that's how they leave that segment with Drew getting the win over disqualification. And he has a sword in the ring, and he chased off Indy Sheer and Jinder Mahal. After this, we had the match of Rhea Ripley beating Nia Jax by pinfall. And the main thing in this match was Nia Jax got busted open in her, I believe, her left eye. I mean, inside of her left eye, she started, like, bleeding from the socket a little bit. Nothing's, like, wrong with her eye. Like, she's badly bruised up. Probably that, but uh, it wasn't reported that she needed to, like, oh, my God, her eye repair, anything like that. Just probably some stitches underneath, like, the eye, uh, eye socket and all that type of thing. But she was bleeding pretty bad. And Rhea Ripley got the win because uh, Rhea was about to hit Nia Jax with the Riptide. And Shayna Baszler got on the turnbuckle and distracted Rhea Ripley for a minute. And then uh, Rhea felt the presence of Nia Jax running towards her, and she ducked. And moved out of the way, and Nia had to hold on and press the brakes so she wouldn't hit her tag partner Shayna. And then Rhea Ripley was able to roll up Nia Jax to get to one, two, three. After the match, you had Nia Jax and Shayna Baszler come together nose to nose and just start mouthing off to one another. And at one point, it had Shayna Baszler ready to take off her jacket, and it looked like those two were about to fight each other. But Shayna said, "You know what? I'm walking out of the ring before she does anything stupid." And as soon as Shayna gets out of the ring, Rhea Ripley comes back into the ring and hits Nia Jax with the Riptide. Just to leave an emphatic statement to both of her opponents at SummerSlam to let them know that this is the type of strength you'll be having to deal with at SummerSlam. After this, we had Mace and T-Bar beating the team of Ali and Mansoor by pinfall whenever T-Bar hit a spinning big boot onto Mansoor. And then after the match... Mace and T-Bar were about to do more damage to Mansoor, but Ali pushed Mansoor out of the ring, and Mace and T-Bar hit Ali with a double choke slam. After this, we had Charlotte Flair coming out for an in-ring promo. Her main point was that she's the best, and that the only way to make your name in the women's division is by cashing in your 
money in the bank on her because Charlotte Flair indicated and did discuss how she has been cashed in not once, not twice, by three times by three separate individuals. And those three separate individuals that cashed in on her were Carmella, Bailey, and now Nikki Ash. And Ash, she's making this proclamation that she is the best and that Nikki Ash has no chance to beat her. She gets hit in the back by Nikki Ash with a steel chair. And that lays her, lays her out, but she rolls out of the ring. You can tell that she got hit pretty bad because whenever she got hit, you heard a clack and you f saw that she fell, but it wasn't like one of those falls like, oh my God, like you know it, but it's like one of those falls like, oh my God, that, that hit hurt and you kind of expected it, but not that much power as you expected that went into that smack. So she fell out of the ring and Nikki Ash was left standing tall, waiting, and it gave you a glimpse into what you will see later in the main event whenever Nikki Ash went against Charlotte Flair in a no-holds-barred match. After this, we had the match of Tamina defeating Dewdrop by pinfall whenever she hit her with a Samoan drop. After this, we had Damian Priest going on Miz TV, and Priest let Miz and John Morrison know that he was only coming out here just to have fun because he has nothing else better to do. But since both of them have pissed him off, he decided, you know what, I'm ready to fight. And he was ready to fight both of them. But since Miz is in a wheelchair and he can't fight right now because he's recovering from an injury, John Morrison had to take his spot. So Damian Priest went against John Morrison and Damian Priest beat John Morrison by pinfall whenever he hit him with a hit him with the South of Heaven, which is basically a choke slam, but as soon as he drops him, he it's a sit-out choke slam. There it is. After the match, you had Sheamus coming out to tag Damian Priest, and John Morrison jumped on Priest with Sheamus. And then you had Ricochet come out to make the save to save Damian Priest from both Sheamus and Ricochet. Not Ricochet, but uh John Morrison. After this, you had they come back from commercial, and when they come back, you had the match of Damian Priest and Ricochet going against Sheamus and John Morrison because during the commercial break, when we were informed whenever they came back, that Sonya Deville came out and made a tag team match between these two teams. And the winners of this team was Damian Priest and Ricochet whenever Damian Priest hit Reckoning on John Morrison and got the pinfall, one, two, three. And remember, the Reckoning is basically a crossroads. Um... It's funny because John Morrison got beat twice in that one night, literally minutes between each other. So this tells you that John Morrison is basically a guy that they'll just use like to get beat. And if they need like a good, fantastic match, they'll throw John Morrison in. But other than that, John Morrison is not really going to be clamoring to fight for any titles anytime soon. At least that's what they are showing us. After this, we had the rematch from last week. Keith Lee going against Karrion Cross, And this time, the results were different. Keith Lee beat Karrion Cross by pinfall whenever you hit him with a spirit bomb. And this is now giving each man 1-1 one -one on the main roster. Overall, Karrion Cross has beaten Keith Lee twice. One in NXT and one on the main roster. While Keith Lee has now only beaten Karrion Cross once. But this was a great start for Keith. Keith Lee's uh, momentum, and it looked like Keith Lee really needed this win. After he won, you could just tell in his face and his expression that he was just so excited to have won this match, and you could tell that he was close to tears running down his face. 
This tells you, um, this shows a man that has been fighting just to get back on television. This shows a man that has been fighting just to show what he can do in the ring. This shows a man that has been fighting just to show that he belongs and show off his ability to the WWE universe. And this match allowed him to do it whenever he got the win over Karrion Cross. After this, we had the match of Reggie defending his 24-7 championship against Akira Tozawa. It was a short match, and Reggie got the win over Tozawa whenever he hit him with a flipping hip drop. After this, it was the main event. Nikki Ash going against Charlotte Flair in a no-holds-barred match. And Nikki Ash did defeat Charlotte Flair by pinfall whenever she hit her with a spinning suplex. Uh, well, well, her feet were on the middle ropes, and she got her in a in a spinning suplex. Assisted spinning suplex, might I add. That main event had everything. It had chairs, it had tables, it had Charlotte spearing Nikki Ash through the barricade. I mean, it just had everything. Charlotte was going out because Monday Night Raw had fans like trying to, not even gonna say hijack, just had fans chanting that they wanted Wyatt, uh, aka Bray Wyatt, since they knew he got released that following sat that Saturday before the show. They were chanting for CM Punk because they were in Chicago. They were chanting for Becky Lynch. I mean, they were chanting all this stuff throughout the night. And WWE would like to say that fans hijacked the show. But fans don't hijack shows. Fans just tell you what they want. And it's up to you as a company to give them what they want. But I'll get more into that again at the end of the show. But anyway, at the end of the night, you had Nikki Ash standing over Charlotte Flair as your final picture to end Monday Night Raw. Now to NXT. NXT opens up with Hit Row defeating Legata del Fantasma by disqualification. And the members of Hit Row in this match were Ashanti Diodonis and Top Dollar defeating Joaquin Wilde and Raul Mendoza. This is the reason how Hit Row beat Legato is because Santos Escobar hit Top Dollar with a steel chair behind his back. Then after this, you which led into a whole brawl where Scott, Isaiah Scott, got into the ring, and he tried to help out his brother, Top Dollar, but it was too much to handle when all three members of Legato del Fantasma started jumping on uh, Isaiah Scott, and then at one point, he even had Santos Escobar put his hands into Sir Swerve's mouth and grab his grill out of his lower teeth, and you could just see Santos just holding Swerve's grill, and then it came to a point that B-Fab came in and hit Santos Escobar behind the back with a steel chair, which led to Hit Row getting an advantage because now it's down to four and three. One, one of the four members of Hit Row being a female, B-Fab, and you had all members of Hit Row just start laying into Legato del Fantasma, which led to Legato running up the top, running up the entrance ramp and running for retreat. But again, Santos Escobar does hold Swerve's mouthpiece, not even mouthpiece, but grill in his hand. I call it a mouthpiece, well, because it's not a mouthpiece, but it's a grill, but I just like, I just think of it as a mouthpiece. Anyway, after this, you had the in-ring debut, row, re-debut of a returning Rich Holland going against Ikemen Jaro, and Rich Holland beat Ikemen Jaro by pinfall whenever you hit him with a scoop slam driver. And then after the match, you had Pete Dunne and Orny Lorcan standing beside Rich Holland and Pete Dunne gets the microphone and said, "These, him, Holland, and Oni Lorcan are the baddest 
toughest three-minute NXT, and his basic point is basically letting the whole NXT roster know that if you think you're better than them, prove them wrong. They are waiting for anybody to step up. So this could lead down to some very, very interesting paths. If they want to go there, they still haven't uh, made the reference of how Oni Lorcan and his partner, Danny Birch, were the ones to injure Rich Holland last year. But I'm waiting for NXT to kind of put those whole puzzles into place for this whole big picture. That's what I want, but I'm not sure if NXT will do it. But NXT has a great track record of filling in the holes for you whenever you think they won't do it. So I have faith in Triple H and the whole NXT uh, roster and building for to finish and build up that uh, masterpiece of a picture for everybody to figure out and understand why Rich Holland is teaming up with the guy that injured him and put him on the shelf last year. After this, you had Roderick Strong beating Bobby Fish by pinfall. Whenever he hit him with the end of heartache, it was a good singles match between both former members of the Undisputed Era. One uh, being a, now a member of the Diamond Mind, Roderick Strong, and one member just being by himself, Bobby Fish. And Roderick Strong and Bobby Fish had a good one-on-one singles uh, man competition. No more, none less. After this, you had the Grizzle Young Veterans defeat the team of Cameron Grimes and L.A. Knight by pinfall. But the thing was, L.A. Knight left Cameron Grimes to fend for himself, which basically turned into a handicap match. And Cameron Grimes was able to hang with Grizzle Young Veterans. As a matter of fact, he was giving them a run for their money in this tag team competition and even led to grizzled young veterans have to pull some sneaky tactics to get the win over Cameron Grimes with both men being in the ring. And then they hit the ticket to mayhem and they got the win over Cameron Grimes at one, two, three. After this, we had a video package of Dakota Kai explaining herself on why she turned on her best friend, the NXT women's champion, Raquel Gonzalez. She explained that she plucked Raquel Gonzalez out of obscurity 18 months ago, which if you do math, that is a year ago in January. And that's around the right time that Raquel Gonzalez made her like debut debut on NXT, which was TakeOver in, I believe, Seattle, Washington in the match where Dakota Kai was going against Tegan Knox at that time. And Dakota let people know that she is no one sidekick. Raquel Gonzalez was supposed to be Dakota's sidekick. Raquel Gonzalez was supposed to be just Dakota's bodyguard, which is basically, if you look back into it, what Dakota was trying to do is put the same similarities of what Shawn Michaels did whenever he did, whenever he turned on Diesel, Kevin Nash, back in mm, 1995. Bad story was, Shawn Michaels was the man Kevin Nash came into WWE just to be his bodyguard, no more than less, but people started to favor Kevin Nash, and Kevin Nash started to get all the championship opportunities in these big main event slots that should have went to Shawn Michaels at Shawn Michaels' time because he brought in Kevin Nash. This is what Dakota Kai was basically letting the people know, and she was letting her know and let the fans know that she is no one's second fiddle. She's not a sidekick to anybody. And she was not going to continue to be a sidekick to Raquel Gonzalez. So whenever Raquel Gonzalez thought that no other woman was left to challenge her, she 
kicked Raquel right in the side of the head. And Raquel Gonzalez should have saw this coming. Dakota Kai says this. Raquel, you should have saw it coming. But you were too self-absorbed to see it coming. You just thought that I'll be by your side for the rest of your time. And you thought that I'll be cool with it. Nah, I'm not cool being anybody's sidekick. So this tells you the reason why Dakota turned on Raquel Gonzalez. And next week, we'll hear from Raquel Gonzalez to see if she is going to get back at Dakota Kai, which more than less, that's going to happen. After this, we had Trey Baxter going against Joe Gacy, and Trey Baxter beat Joe Gacy by hitting him with a 450 stomp. It was an impressive maneuver. It looked like it was a miscalculated 450 splash that he had to like calculate to like turn into a double stomp. But anyway, the move looked it nasty. And Trey Baxter now advances to face Odyssey Jones in the semifinals in the NXT Breakout Tournament. The other side of the tournament is Carmelo Hayes going against Duke Hudson in the other side of the semifinals. And those are will be your last two matches before the finals of the NXT Breakout Tournament. After this, we had... Karrion Cross come out, and he's standing on top of the announce table, and he's taunting Samoa Joe. He's letting Samoa Joe know that he doesn't run NXT before he was with Regal, and now after he's no longer with Regal. Cross is the one that runs NXT, and he is just basically baiting Joe to come out and try to do something. But as soon as Samoa Joe comes out, and security is trying to separate Joe from trying to get at Cross, Cross starts walking to the back and runs away. And Joe just starts destroying the security. He starts punching them and throwing them out over the ropes. And he even puts one of the security guards in the Coquita Clutch. And as he's doing this, he looks into the cameras and he just started yelling. And he just starts telling Karrion Cross, this is you. I'm coming for you. And, that how, and that's how they end that segment. And then after this, you had your main event of NXT, the love her or leave her match of Johnny Gargano going against Dexter Loomis. If Johnny Gargano beats Dexter Loomis, Dexter Loomis cannot try to go after Indy Hartwell. But if Johnny Gargano did lose to Dexter Loomis, Dexter Loomis would be able to date Indy Hartwell and Johnny Gargano would have to give Dexter Loomis a try into the way. You basically have to open up his arms for Dexter Loomis. That didn't happen. Johnny Gargano defeats Dexter Loomis by hitting him with the final beat, which is basically a apron uh, DDT from the apron to the inside of the ring. And this was a good one-on-one match. It was a nice storytelling. It was nice character uh, movement. It was nice characters uh, situation between Gargano and Candice LeRae and Indy Hartwell and Dexter Loomis. All four of them had nice chemistry and how they tell the story. But in the end, Johnny Gargano was one that beats Dexter Loomis. And as Candice and Gargano are walking up the ramp with Indy Hartwell, Indy Hartwell starts turning her back and starts looking at the ring. And you see Dexter just looking at Indy walk away like he just lost the love of his life. And Indy lost the love of her life. But Indy just starts running into the ring and she jumps on top of Dexter and they just start making out. And you see Candice and Johnny Gargano on the apron on the entrance ramp like how can this be how can she like this guy like oh my god but hey that's how they ended off nxt where indy harwell and dexter loomis making out in the ring and candace and johnny just walks to the back and just like playing like father and mother like complete like dismay and like they can't just believe it after this we have 
AEW. First match of the night, we have Chris Jericho defeating Juventud Guerrero to advance into stage four of his five labors of Jericho. In this match, Chris Jericho had to defeat Juventud Guerrero by performing a top rope maneuver to win the match. Well, basically, he had to perform a top rope maneuver before he can get a pin or submission. And that's what he did. On the top rope, he saw Juventud Guerrero, and as Juventud was getting up, he got he jumped off the top rope and hit a spinning Judas effect off the top rope onto Juventud Guerrero and got the pinfall. It was a nice one-on-one match between Juventud and Chris Jericho, a little sloppy here and there. I mean, Juventud hasn't wrestled on prime television in a minute, and Chris Jericho is probably exhausted after having to go against Chris, uh, Nick Gage last week and still kind of recovering, so I can give them a pass for this. And, but nevertheless, it was a nice solid like throwback for anybody that watched uh, WCW either back in that time or you watched WCW in the highlight videos on YouTube. Anyway, after this, you had Warlow coming out and attacking both Juventud Guerrero and Chris Jericho. And MJF got on the microphone and he let Chris Jericho know that next week he will be going against Warlow and that MJF will be ringside to make sure that Chris Jericho cannot even get past Warlow. Because remember, Chris Jericho has to defeat Warlow, and this will be his last labor before he gets to MJF. And Chris Jericho wants to go after MJF so bad, he wants to get his hands on MJF. So if Jericho beats Warlow next week, he is one step closer. He No, no, after he beats Warlow, if he beats Warlow next week, he'll be able to go against MJF, and that'll be his last step. But if he doesn't, he doesn't go against MJF at all. After this, we had a trios match, a.k.a. a six-man tag team match, of Darby Allen, Eddie Kingston, and John Moxley beating the team of 2.0 and Daniel Garcia by pinfall whenever Darby Allen hit the coffin drop to Daniel Garcia. This was a good six-man match. 2.0 was able to come out and was able to get their name and stocks up in the world of professional wrestling after they were just fired from WWE, what, about a good two months ago? And this guy, Daniel Garcia, he was able to get Rise his stock up because when you got those three guys going against a team of Darby Allen, Eddie Kingston, and John Moxley, all main eventers in AEW stature, trust me, you're going to raise your stock up. And that's what 2.0 and Daniel Garcia was able to do. After this, you had Christian Cage going against the Blade, and Christian Cage beat Blade by pinfall whenever he hits him with a spear. The Blade was trying to go for the brass knuckles when the referee was distracted, but he eats the spear from Christian Cage, and that's how Christian wins the match. After this, you had a Britt Baker in-ring promo, but it was interrupted by Red Velvet, and the main point of this was Red Velvet came out to the ring, and she wanted to challenge Britt Baker for her AEW Women's Championship. Britt Baker accepted, and she said only on one condition, that she will challenge Red Velvet on AEW Rampage, their inaugural first episode of AEW Rampage, which is next Friday. And Red Velvet said, okay, we'll do that. And they will be in Pittsburgh. So they, so Britt Baker will have the advantage in this match. It will be on Britt Baker's turf. And it will be the first episode of AEW Rampage. And that is on next Friday. I want to just remind you of that. And after this, you had Britt Baker's assistant Rebel trying to attack Red Velvet from behind. But Red Velvet saw that coming and hit Rebel in the gut which made Rebel drop her crutch that she was trying to swing at Red Velvet. 
and Reva was trying to grab the crutch, and then Britt Baker hit her with a curb stomp, and they just standed over Red Velvet's body, and this was just hyping up their match for AEW Rampage next Friday for the AEW Women's Championship. After this, you had an in-ring segment of Adam Page. He comes out, and before he even get a whole word, and he wanted to talk to the elite, and as soon as he says he wants to talk to the elite, the elite come out, and the elite are flaked of the AEW Tag Team Champions, the Young Bucks, the Impact Tag Team Champions, the Good Brothers, and the AEW World Champion, Kenny Omega. Kenny Omega gets on the mic, and he tells Adam Page that, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to lobby for better friends. You're trying to lobby for a plea to try to get into the elite. But the elite are not the same the elite that you were in. We're in a better spot, in a better position. We are all champions, and we do not accept losers. We do not accept failure. We do not accept people who are happy to be sidekicks. Adam Page slaps Kenny Omega in the face, and you see all the elite members start jumping on Adam Page, start putting the boots to him, and then Good Brothers hit Adam Page with a magic killer, and then you see Adam Page being set up for a BTE trigger by the Young Bucks. However... The Dark Order was going to interrupt the Young Bucks from hitting Adam Page with the BT trigger, but Stu Grayson and Evil Uno stopped the rest of the Dark Order from getting into the ring because early in the night, Adam Page told the Dark Order that he wants a separation from the Dark Order. He knows that they're his friends. They, he knows that he, the Dark Order will have his back, but he wants to just be by himself right now. He wants to ride solo. He wants to do everything dolo by himself because he feels regret for losing that important match last week and made the Dark Order relinquish their AEW Tag Team Championship opportunity. And uh, Dark Order backstage said, no, 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 we're good, we're good. We are with you, Adam, we're good. But Adam told him, no, we're, I want to just ride out by myself. I got to do this by myself. And Evil Uno said, you know what, guys? Adam Page said he wants to be by himself. We're going to give it to him. We're not going to push him on it. We're going to let him do his thing. So this plays into that of why the Dark Order didn't get involved and couldn't help because Stu Grace and the Evil Uno told him, no, 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 we got to go back to the back. We got to let Adam do this by himself. And Adam Page ended up hitting, ended up getting hit with three BTE triggers by the Young Bucks. And Kenny Omega ends up hitting Adam Page with the AEW championship and the final segment final uh, picture of the segment was all the elite members standing over a prone body of adam page after this we had the match of miro defeating big shoddy lee for the tnt championship well basically miro retained the tnt championship whenever he locked in the game over aka the camel clutch on big shoddy lee it was a go back and forth one-on-one -on -one match miro Ate some hits from Shoddy Lee, but in no way did anybody think Big Shoddy Lee was going to beat Miro for the TNT Championship. Just wanted to throw that out there. After this, we had the match of Layla Hirsch going against the Bunny in a NWA Women's Championship number one contenders match. Layla Hirsch ends up beating the Bunny whenever she locks in the R bar and makes the Bunny tap out. So Layla Hirsch beats the Bunny by submission. So Layla Hirsch is the number one contender for the NWA Women's Championship. And sidebar note, 
Camille, the NWA Women's Champion, was at ringside, and she came into the ring after the match, and she stood in front of Layla Hirsch, and you can see the size differentiation between Layla Hirsch and Camille. Camille is taller than Layla Hirsch, and Camille is bigger as in jacked, genetically jacked in muscle tone and definition than Layla Hirsch, so you can tell that Layla Hirsch will have a nice little uh, hill to climb to beat Camille for the NWA Women's Championship. After this, we had our main event of Malachi Black going against Cody Rhodes in Malachi Black's AEW in-ring debut. And might I say, Malachi Black beat Cody Rhodes in dominant fashion. Yes, yes, yes. Malachi Black, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't go so far to say Malachi Black didn't even break a sweat the way that he beat Cody, if we're going to be honest. Cody went through a table, he got cut on his nose a little bit and Cody was able to throw a couple shots here and there, but Malachi Black was able to take out Cody's legs and everything else. But the final, the final maneuver that Malachi Black did was hit him with the, the black mask, the spinning heel kick to Cody's face and got the one, two, three. This match lasted about a good solid. I'll give it ooh seven minutes, but it was all dominant fashion of Malachi Black just beating up on Cody period. After this, you had Tony Giovanni coming to the ring, and Tony talked to Cody. He was trying to talk to Cody and ask Cody, is he okay and everything else? The doctor of AEW comes out to give Cody a crutch so Cody could try to stand up on, but Cody puts the crutch in the corner, and he goes on this big tirade. Cody starts saying that how he got into professional wrestling, he was a referee, and then how he wanted to win the WWE Championship, but he doesn't say WWE Championship, but he says that he wanted to win the title that his father got robbed from by New York, which is WWE. New York is WWE in wrestling slang. And he talked about how dreams change over time, and he gives off this big uh, big charade and big long lecture speech like he's setting up for his retirement. Like This is sounding like a retirement speech. And boy, he was he was about to retire. He starts taking off one foot, one boot. And the tradition in professional wrestling is whenever you're retiring, you leave like a piece of your uh, material, a piece of your ring gear in the ring to let the fans know that you are retired now. And Cody was going to take off his boots and leave them into the ring. And as soon as he took off one boot... He placed it down and then he starts looking at the fans and he has teary eye and he like salutes to the fans and everything else. And then you see Malachi Black from the come from the back just runs into the ring and pops Cody in the back with the clutch with the crutch. And you see Malachi Black holding one wrestling boot, holding Cody's wrestling boot up. And this is showing you that Malachi Black isn't done with Cody. He's not done. He's not letting Cody just be retired anytime soon and wrestling twitter started to have a good field day about this because they were speculating about oh my god cody might be retiring or he might be away from wrestling sometime i tweeted out that cody only took off one boot he before he was able to take off the other boot malachi black hit him in the back and AEW's good at storytelling as i said before AEW's good at storytelling so cody had one boot on one boot off cody is one foot in wrestling one foot out he already is doing Hollywood tides, Hollywood roles, Hollywood speaking engagements. He's on other shows and anything else. But Cody does make time for professional wrestling. 
But Cody is letting everybody know, and AEW is dropping a little nugget right now, that Cody is taking some time off. Cody will be off of television a little bit more than the usual than you do know of, because Cody was headstrong into always wrestling because he's come from the wrestling background. But Cody knows big business. Cody knows that he has to make money outside of professional wrestling. Cody knows how to make money in professional wrestling, and he knows that if he wants to make AEW a bigger product, he basically has to become the John Cena version of AEW. He has to go out and do Hollywood press events. He has to go out and do Hollywood uh, movies and Hollywood shows and all these other things to just to big up the name of AEW. So Cody is that guy. So with this situation, he has one foot in wrestling, one foot out. He had one foot, one wrestling boot still on while Malachi Black is holding that other wrestling boot. And Malachi Black is not letting Cody get out of professional wrestling just yet. So that was your ending of AEW Dynamite. Now on to Impact Wrestling. Impact Wrestling had a show Saturday night, and the show was called Homecoming. The main concept was it was a tournament base of eight teams, mixed tag teams, and the winners of the tag team tournament would be the Homecoming King and Queens. And the teams for this tournament were as follows. Matt Cardona and Chelsea Green. Crazy Steve and Rosemary. Petey Williams and Jordan Grace. Tommy Dreamer and Rachel Ellering. Brian Myers and Missy Hyatt. Deanna Perrazzo and Matthew Raywalt, formerly known as Aiden English in WWE. Hernandez and Alicia Edwards. And Fala Blah and Tasha Steeles. The winners of this tournament were Deanna Perrazzo and Matthew Raywalt. The rest of the night, you had singles matches. Well, three other singles matches. The first singles match was Josh Alexander defeating Black Taurus to retain his X Division title whenever he hit Black Taurus with the Divine Intervention, or better known as the Jade Driller, to get the 1-2-3. The next one-on-one match was between Diener and Willie Mack. Diener ends up beating Willie Mack by hitting him with a DDT after Eric Young hits Willie Mack in the back with the Violence by Design flagpole that they carry. And in the main event, it was Eddie Edwards defeating W. Morsey in a no-holds-barred match when Eddie Edwards wrapped his knee around with a steel chain and hit the Boston Knee Party on W. Morsey, which gave W. Morsey his first loss in Impact Wrestling. Now that's what happened on their Saturday show. Now on to Impact Wrestling, their Thursday show. Starting off with Chris Bay going against Juice Robinson, with Chris Bay having Jay White in his corner and Juice Robinson having his part tag partner David Finley in his corner. And Chris Bay ends up beating Juice Robinson by hitting him with the Art of Finesse, which is basically a springboard RKO whenever Juice Robinson was distracted by David Finley and Jay White fighting on the entrance ramp. And after this, as Jay White is grabbing Chris Bay to go up the ramp after Bay has beaten Juice Robinson. Jay White gives Chris Bay his first official Bullet Club t-shirts, which means Chris Bay is now officially in Bullet Club. So now Bullet Club has one member of the Impact roster underneath the Bullet Club banner. After this, we had Matthew Raywalt and Deanna Perrazzo's homecoming King and Queen, King and Queen ceremony their coronation if you will but that was interrupted by mickey james and mickey james whole purpose was to come out and 
one, congratulate Deanna Perrazzo for becoming the queen of Impact Wrestling, and also to give Deanna Perrazzo her contract for showing up to NWA Empower to defend her knockouts title. She told Deanna Perrazzo straight up that we have a handshake agreement, but I need it in contract. I need it in paper. I need it in writing. So she gives her her contract, and she tells her to sign the contract, and you'll know who your opponent is. Deanna Perrazzo told her, I went through this last um, time. I went through this whenever I had to sign a contract for Slammiversary, and I didn't know who my opponent was. I still beat my opponent, but this time, before I sign anything, I want to know who my opponent is. And Mickey James said, fine, I could tell you who your opponent is, or I could just have her come out here and show you who she is. And the music plays, and it's Melina. Melina is a former WWE professional wrestler who was around in 2005 and left... I want to say 2011, she left WWE, but she hasn't been on, well, she was doing independent uh, wrestling events in the late, I'll give it 2017 and onward until Corona happened and then had to cut everything down, but since NWA is back running up, she's been in NWA. Just want to give you the backstory on Melina. Melina comes out and she faces off with Deanna Perrazzo and Deanna Perrazzo signs her contract in front of Mickey James, and now it's been official. At NWA in power, we have Deanna Peraza going against Molina for the Knockouts Championship. After this segment, we had a fatal four-way match to crown the new number one contender for the X Division title. It was Jake Something going against Trey Miguel and Davari and Rohit Raju. Jake Something wins the match by hitting the black hole slam on Davari. So now Jake Something is the new number one contender for Josh Alexander's X Division Championship. After this, we had Rachel Ellering and Jordan Grace going against the team of Tasha Steeles and Kiara Hogan, Fire and Flavor. Rachel Ellering and Jordan Grace beats Kiara Hogan and Tasha Steeles by pinfall whenever Jordan Grace and Rachel Ellering hit their tag team finish, which is basically a assist spinning Uranagi to Kiara Hogan and got the 1-2-3. After this, you had the face-off of Kiara Hogan and Tasha Steeles. You could feel that they have some... Uh, some bad vibes between each other. They were not really clicking on them in the match per se. And it really showed after the match when those two were just standing right beside each other. And then at one moment you see a woman just poof into the ring because the camera angle was focused on Kiara Hogan. And then when they get a whole full shot of those two, again, you see a mystery woman in the ring and she big boots Kiara Hogan in the face. And D'Lo Brown, who's the commentator, he says, that's Savannah Evans. I have no idea who Savannah Evans is, by the way. And I'm a wrestling guy. I do a whole lot of background research on people. I don't know who she is. Hopefully, next week, they'll be able to tell you who she is more in light. But anyway, she ends up hitting uh, Kiara Hogan with the big boot. And she hits her with a Samoan drop. And as this is all happening... Tasha Steeles is just standing there watching this happen and unfold. She's not trying to help Kiara Hogan. She's not trying to do nothing. She's just standing there with her arms crossed. And after Savannah hits Kiara Hogan with the Samoan drop, Savannah and Tasha Steeles leave the ring together. So now this ends the team of fire and flavor of Kiara Hogan and Tasha Steeles. And now you see that Tasha Steeles have a heavy hitter behind her now. So now you get to see focus and the primary focus is now going to be on Tasha Steeles because I believe Tasha Steeles will be going as a singles competitor now on through the knockouts division. After this, we had a one-on-one match of Steve Macklin going against an enhancement talent, Ja C. And 
Steve Macklin beat Jossie up. I'm not even going to try to front with you. Steve Macklin dominated this match. There were multiple times he could have pinned the man and end the match, but he didn't do that. He lifted his head off the mat about a good three times. And the last time he did it, he hit him with a sit-out reverse 1916. They still haven't given them a new move, a name yet. And once they do, I will name it for you guys here. But he ends up beating him with a reverse sit-out 1916 and gets the pinfall. After this, Macklin beats up more on Jaw. And he goes for a steel chair, and he's about to hear, hit Jaw with the steel chair. But Petey Williams comes out to make the save and was able to grab the chair out of Macklin's hand, hit Macklin in the gut. And then he's about to hit Macklin more with the steel chair. The Macklin rolls out the ring and he just stares at Petey Williams and he says nothing to him. He just stares at him. And then he just starts walking up the ramp. So that tells you that Petey and Macklin are having are going to be engaging in a feud somewhere down the line. And in the main event, we had Kazarian making his Impact Wrestling uh, return, teaming up with Sammy Callahan and Eddie Edwards going against the Good Brothers and Impact Wrestling champion. Kenny Omega, and the winners of this match was Cass, Sammy Callahan, and Eddie Edwards, when Eddie Edwards ended up hitting the Boston Knee Party to Carl Anderson while Sammy Callahan pile-drived Kenny Omega on the apron, and Edwards got the pinfall on Carl Anderson, and then after the match, W. Morris, he comes into the ring unbeknownst to Eddie Edwards and attacks him from behind, and as soon as Eddie Edwards is on the ground, he's trying to fight his way to get up. And he's just trying to fill out his way because he just got hit from behind. W. Morrissey grabs him and hits him with a powerbomb. And that's how you end Impact Wrestling with W. Morrissey giving Eddie Edwards a powerbomb. You could tell that they're not going to end this feud with a singles uh, match, a singles one-on-one competition between W. Morrissey and Eddie Edwards. You could tell that they're going to do some type of stipulation, probably like a last man standing or probably even a cage match of some sorts with weapons included into it, something along the lines of that, because W. Morrissey is a big man and it took weapons to beat him. And Eddie knows this, and Impact Wrestling knows to have a good match or a good uh, type of feud. You need to have a blowout, a big type of bang to in a feud of this magnitude between Morrissey and Eddie Edwards. So, again, I think you were going to get probably like a last man standing or some type of steel cage uh, situation between W. Morrissey and Eddie Edwards. But, again, Impact Wrestling ended their show with Eddie Edwards getting powerbombed, and that's how Impact Wrestling decided to end their show for this week. Now on to SmackDown. The first thing that happened on SmackDown was Sasha Banks coming into the ring and she cut an in-ring promo. Her main point of the promo was that she's the reason Bianca Belair is SmackDown champion. She's the reason that Bianca Belair is a star on SmackDown. She's the reason that Bianca Belair is an SP winner. That is a ESPN uh, award winner for their match at WrestleMania. That one WWE moment of the year for the ESPN awards and claim that while she was out for these four months Bianca Belair never thanked Sasha Banks for taking her from being a rookie into the star that she is today Bianca Belair comes out and interrupts that and says that she is a champion based off of her own hard work winning the Royal Rumble and she reminded Sasha that Sasha begged for Bianca to pick her so they can go in be so they can go make history at WrestleMania being the first two black women to main event of WrestleMania. She reminded Sasha that Sasha begged for that match. Bianca didn't beg for it. And that they made history. Not just Sasha. They made history. 
And Sasha then ends up issuing a challenge to Bianca for a match for the SmackDown Women's Championship. Bianca Belair accepts. Out comes Selena Vega, who, remind you, Selena Vega last week challenged Bianca Belair for a match for the SmackDown Women's Championship, and Bianca Belair said, I accept. So Bianca's just accepting championship opportunities left and right to any Tom, Dick, and Harry. Anyway, Selena comes out, and she is saying how she is not going to let Sasha just come in and just jump in front of the line in front of her before she gets her shot at Bianca Belair. Bianca told, Bianca made this simple. Bianca said this, Sasha, I'll see you at SummerSlam. Selena, you'll get your championship match tonight. And that's how that segment ended. After this, our first match of the night was Jay Uso going against Dominic Mysterio. Jay Uso ends up beating Dominic Mysterio after Dominic Mysterio hits Jay Uso with the 619. But as he's going up to the turnbuckle, he sees his father having to jump onto Jimmy Uso because Jimmy was about to interfere. So Dominic got distracted. And as soon as he's about to jump off, Jay Uso um, sneaks under Dominic and Dominic lands on his feet. And as soon as Dominic turns around, he runs into a super kick by Jay. And Jay hits him with a super kick and it goes up the top rope and hits him with a splash. So Jay ends up winning the match with a super kick, then a splash. After this, our next match was King Nakamura beating Apollo Crews by disqualification when Commander Aziz pulled Nakamura off the top, off of Apollo Crews as he as Nakamura was pinning Apollo, and Nakamura was beating up on Commander Aziz, and Nakamura got back, slid himself back into the ring, and then as soon as Apollo was running towards Nakamura, Nakamura threw Apollo into Aziz's midsection, which made Aziz drop down off the apron onto the floor, and Apollo just slumped into the ring, and Nakamura was able to slide himself out of the ring while his guitarist Rick Boogs plays him off. And then we had a backstage segment with Selena Vega and Adam Pierce and Sonya Deville. Selena goes into the goes into their locker room and Selena is told that she is not getting her championship opportunity tonight. It's not happening. Selena is asking that how is this not happening? Bianca Belair already accepted twice and Pierce told Selena that for a championship match, we need promotion, and this hasn't got the amount of time for promotion that it needs. So what Selena Vega is going to have is a Prove Yourself match tonight. If Selena beats Bianca Belair tonight, she will get the winner of Bianca and Sasha after their match at SummerSlam, and Selena agrees to this. After that segment, we got Tegan Knox beating Tamina by pinfall, whenever Tamina was going for a Samoan drop, and then Shotzi Blackheart shot one of her missiles towards Tamina, and it didn't hit Tamina, it shot past her, but it was enough to cause a distraction where uh, Tegan Knox was able to get off of Tamina's shoulders and get her for the pinfall by hitting her with a roll-up. And that's how Tegan Knox beat it, Tamina. After this, we had an Edge in-ring promo. The main point of this was that he mentions how he sees a former self of former version of himself in Seth Rollins. He admits that if the roles were reversed, he would have did the exact same thing that Seth did to him last week. And last week, 
Edge got caught by Seth Rollins whenever Seth caught him from behind and started beating up on him and hit him with a camera, TV camera. That's the exact same thing that Edge did to The Undertaker at Survivor Series, I want to say 2007. That year, whenever Undertaker was in a hell in a cell with Batista for the World Heavyweight Championship. But I digress. But that plays into a part of what Edge meant. Seth Rollins is basically a former version of his past life. Rollins ends up interrupting Edge in the ring, but Rollins does it by via video. So he's in a different part of the arena. And Rollins is saying how he's the one that controls the narrative here. Edge doesn't control the narrative. He is nothing like Edge. If anything, they're similar, but at the end, Rollins is more successful than Edge. Edge then has to just stop him and say, you know what, to end this all, I want to challenge you at SummerSlam. Rollins says, you know what, unless, you know what, I'm going to think about that. And as I'm thinking about it, you should be thinking about it because you know what I can do to somebody with a perfectly good neck. You know what I can do whenever I have my foot on the back of somebody's neck and they're perfectly healthy. You, on the other end, on the other end edge, you have a neck that has been fused not once, not twice, but three times. Your neck has been fused three times. What will happen to your wife? What will happen to your daughters if I happen to do something to you at SummerSlam? And Edge quickly snaps off and tells Seth they'll keep his wife and kids' names out of his mouth. And then Edge just went on a whole rampage, just going off on Seth, telling him point blank, you are an Edge light. You are upset that I threw you out of the Royal Rumble in 2020. You're upset that I threw you out of the Royal Rumble 2021. You're upset that in 2014, you didn't finish the job when you had the chance when you had your foot on the back of my neck. And now your past mistakes is coming back to bite you in the butt. Seth is angry, and at, the, at this point, he says, you know what, screw it, you're on. At SummerSlam, it will be Edge versus Seth Rollins, and Edge is smiling at this point. So now, we have our match, and it is official. Edge will be going against Seth Rollins at SummerSlam. And this whole match has been building off of a whole seven years, seven years ago incident where Seth was planning on ending Edge's whole career by curb-stomping Edge whenever Edge couldn't, like, wrestle back in 2014. That's what this whole match is built off of. After this, we had our tag team match of the night of the Street Profits beating Dolph Ziggler and Robert Roode by pinfall whenever the Street Profits hit their tag team finish, whenever Angela Dawkins hit a pop-up spinebuster on Dolph Ziggler, while Montez Ford went to the top rope and hit a frog splash. And his frog splash usually is high, but this one was really high, and he landed on Dolph. And they got the win. One, two, three. After this, we had our Prove Yourself match between Bianca Belair and Selena Vega. Remember, if Selena wins, she gets the match between well, with the winner of Bianca Belair and Sasha Banks after SummerSlam. That you don't have to worry about because Bianca Belair beats Selena Vega by pinfall whenever Selena gets hit with the KOD by Bianca Belair. And whenever Selena is in the KOD, Bianca is smiling off, this is for you, Sasha, and she hits Selena Vega with the KOD to get the one, two, three. After this is our main event. Finn Balor beats Baron Corbin by pinfall whenever Finn Balor hits Baron Corbin with the coup de grace. After the match, Finn Balor gets on the mic 
and says he wants Roman Reigns. And he talks about how three years ago, if this was Finn three years ago, Finn would have just smiled and just agreed with what happened last week. Remember last week, John Cena signed his name onto Finn Balor's contract. However, Finn Balor is not that same Finn Balor from three years ago. He's a new Finn Balor. That old Finn Balor is dead. So Finn challenges Roman Reigns and he says point blank that if he has to go through John Cena to get to Roman Reigns, he'll do that. And as soon as he says that, Roman Reigns comes out and Roman Reigns gets in the ring. Roman tells Finn, listen, I came out last week and I supported you to challenge me for the Universal title. I have no problem with you challenging me. That's fine and dandy. But the thing is, you're going to keep my name out your mouth. When you're on the my ring, you're on my television show, you're going to keep my name out your mouth. And then as soon as he says this, he just stares at Finn and Finn stares at him and he throws his mic into Finn's chest. And as soon as Roman turns around to walk out of the ring, Finn comes right behind him and just gives him a nice push and throws, well, pushes Roman out of the ring. And Roman lands on his feet. And Roman is now, you can start seeing Roman's blood start to boil. And he gets on the apron and it looks like he's about to get in the ring. But right before Roman does actually get in the ring, the Usos jump Finn from behind. And they put a nice little beating on Finn. And as Roman is seeing this beat down, he walks up the ramp and he's like, okay, his cousins got this. No, they don't. Finn Balor comes from underneath that beat down and starts beating up on the Usos himself. So what was originally a two-on-one beat down, now he's beating them up, just beating them up. He beats them up and throws them outside of the ring and then he hits a uh, top Kun Hilo over the top rope onto the Usos, and now Finn gets back into the ring, and he looks at Roman, as Roman is now staring at Finn on the entrance ramp, and Finn just gives his fingers salute over to Roman, and it gives off the aura of, what are you going to do? Finn's basically challenging Roman Reigns to get into the ring. Roman takes off his jacket, and you start seeing Roman walk with authority right over to the ring, he slides himself into the ring, and Finn meets him right there, and they just start brawling with one another, and Finn looks like he gets the upper hand on Roman, but again, the Usos come up from outside of the ring, and just starts dogpiling right on top of Finn, and Roman joins in now, so now you got the whole bloodline beating up on Finn, Roman Reign hits Finn Balor with a Superman punch, and then one of the Usos hit Finn with a splash, and Roman locks in the guillotine, and you see Finn tap out to the guillotine, but Roman is still holding on to it, so Finn basically passes out in the guillotine. So your last imagery of SmackDown was Finn Balor laid out while Roman is holding the Universal title over Finn Balor's body while Jim, Jimmy and Jey Uso are behind Roman, showing off the big power dynamic that the bloodline has over the main event scene. And that's how Friday Night Smackdown ended. Now, before I get you guys out of here, I told you I was going to talk about Ric Flair and Bray Wyatt's situation. Let me get off with the most easiest one. Ric Flair on Monday, well, it was announced Monday morning. 
that Ric Flair has decided that he wanted to leave WWE and WWE has released Ric Flair. It started to come out into reports that Ric Flair asked for his release from WWE. And you might be, as a casual fan listening to me, saying, Ric Flair is old. What is Ric Flair doing with a WWE contract? Well, Ric Flair was under a WWE Legends contract. And a Legends contract, in my best understanding, is WWE as signs you as a legend and what you do under that contract as a legend is you make appearances for the company. If the company wants you to show up on Raw or SmackDown or even NXT, you got to show up and fulfill your legal obligation of the dates that they have you prepared for whenever they want you to show up. They can put you into their video games. They can sell merchandise of your imagery on t-shirts, mugs, anything type of uh, situation like that. And if anything, I think you could probably do speaking engagements for under the WWE banner, maybe. Because, I mean, WWE wrestlers have that into their contract. But maybe the Legends, I'll throw that in too. But it's basically, I would think it's basically everything that performers do, but you don't, like, wrestle. That's the only thing that Legends don't do. And that's in a WWE Legends contract. That's my basic understanding of it. But Ric Flair wanted out of his contract and WWE granted it. So Ric Flair is out of WWE and he's now a free agent, even as a legend. He's still a free agent. And let me tell you why I think he might be headed next. I think Ric Flair might be headed to probably AEW because I watch a guy called Wrestling Ranton on YouTube. He's another black uh, content creator. He's a black YouTuber, a black podcaster that talks about professional wrestling and even some finances. But his main gist was that Ric Flair could come into AEW and how and AEW can kind of form a Four Horsemen reunion because AEW already has Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard under their contracts in AEW. And Ric Flair, it will be an easy scoop up for AEW because AEW likes to have legends under their belt because legends can pass off knowledge to these younger athletes and these younger wrestlers that need that kind of tutelage so they can get to the next level. That's one. And then two, AEW likes to pay respect to the wrestlers of the past, the people that made professional wrestling what it is today, and they like to celebrate them. So that's what AEW likes to do. So just to have Ric Flair underneath their banner, underneath that company, would do significant wonders for AEW. Just to have Flair underneath it would do wonders. The missing puzzle, the missing piece of that puzzle for the Four Horsemen would be uh, Barry Windham. Barry Windham is the uncle of Bray Wyatt. He's the uncle of Bo Dallas. He is a wrestler from the 70s and the 80s, but majority of people probably know him from the 80s for being with his run with the Four Horsemen, but he was known as a good professional wrestler as well. And if we can get, if AEW can get Barry Windham just to show up in AEW and they can do a little Four Horsemen reunion, that'll be great nostalgia just for all the professional wrestling fans and the wrestlers that are watching either you're in WWE or you're in Impact or anywhere around the world just to see the, all four of those men showing up on a national broadcast uh, television, a wrestling program. That'll be great. Just to have that as a memory, in, just to put that in your memory bank, that'd just be great. 
But also, if Barry Windham could come into WWE, he could possibly even bring in his nephews of Bray Wyatt and Bo Dallas. And yes, I say Bray Wyatt because Bray Wyatt was released last Saturday. No, no, last Sunday. Because when I released... No, 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 last Saturday. Because whenever I dropped this episode and of Saturday, and then in the middle of Saturday last week, it, the news came out that Bray Wyatt was released. Everybody started jumping in on it. I even tweeted out, wow, how do you let go? And I just put dot, 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 and I just said, wow. And I just at WWE with that. And I put hashtag Bray Wyatt. Like, how do you let go of a creative mind like Bray Wyatt? How do you let go of a guy that made his own character that is basically a creepy-looking character, but people didn't care? People were invested in the man himself, Bray Wyatt. Bray Wyatt came into WWE as Husky Harris, I'll say, 2010, okay? Uh, for the original NXT. Not the NXT that we know of now. NXT that we knew back then in 2010 era. NXT back then was basically a reality TV show uh, of a game show. Where all these all these like professional wrestlers that you have under contract in the developmental system. You bring them up and they're on this one show that they have to perform like meaningless tasks. And they'll see them wrestle like a couple matches. But they'll do a whole lot of meaningless tasks. And it was all for nothing. Okay? He goes on this sec he goes on NXT uh season two as Husky Harris. That complete thing was a flop. I didn't like it. Nobody liked it. It was weird when you look at the talent that was on NXT season two. You had Alex Riley, you had Low Key, you had Percy Watson, you had Husky Harris, you had Michael McGillicuddy, formerly known as uh Curtis Axel. You had some talent on that roster for the second season. Even then, you just still clipped them right at the knees. But let's get past that. Bray Wyatt is the Husky Harris character. He does what he can do, but he gets sent back down to developmental. And at the time, it was FCW, Florida Championship Wrestling for WWE. Before they transferred over to NXT, what we now know as NXT. That NXT was the foundation for the NXT that we know of now. NXT of Bray Wyatt's class. Bray Wyatt. Husky Harris. Husky Harris now comes up with the character of Bray Wyatt. This re-updated version of a former character. Waylon Mercer back in the WWF had in the ooh, mid. No, no, no. No. Middle 90s. Like 94, 95-ish character. Right? And the character is based off of Robert De Niro's character of Cape Fear. If you remember that. If you don't, Google Cape Fear from Robert De Niro and you'll understand what I'm talking about. That was the character William Mercer. And Bray Wyatt's character was an updated version of that character, but as a cult leader. Bray Wyatt started to make a buzz for, his, for himself down in NXT. Vince McMahon ends up bring him up onto the main roster in the summer of 2014. And Bray Wyatt had a family, which was Luke Harper, the formerly known as Brody Lee of AEW, the real man, John Hubert, rest in peace, and Eric Rowan, 
were all in the Wyatt family with Bray Wyatt. And long story short, Bray Wyatt took Bray Wyatt's character took a couple hits. He came in promising in 2014. No, 2013, sorry. He came in in 2013. And then 2014, he got the nice little match. Not even nice little match. The nice match with John Cena where John Cena was supposed to... Where we all thought John Cena was going to lose Bray Wyatt, but that didn't happen. So Bray Wyatt had to take a little dip. But then, no need to fear. Bray Wyatt was able to come back from that loss and uh, bring a, bring his character more relevancy. That's the whole story of Bray Wyatt's whole case in WWE. He comes in with a whole lot of momentum and a whole lot of push and a whole lot of people want to see him succeed. And it flops. Not on his part because of management. And then Bray Wyatt just reshuffles the pieces and puts the puzzle back together in a different way. And he's able to build back momentum. And this time they add Braun Strowman with them, the family. Now you got a four-man destructive-looking team. And you think that they're going to push Bray Wyatt straight to the main event picture? Nope. Didn't do that. They decide in 2016, you know, we're going to split the whole family up. Eric Rowan and Braun Strowman, you guys will be on Raw while Brody Lee and Brody Lee and yeah, Brody Lee and Bray Wyatt will be on SmackDown. Cool. But at this time, Brody Lee was injured in 2016. So Bray was by himself for a minute until Brody Lee came back in probably about September of 2016. And Bray Wyatt and his Wyatt family were on a good, good little ride. And then they grabbed Randy Orton. And now you get skyrocketed into the main event because now you got Randy Orton on your side. And now you get into main event status. And now they give you the WWE Championship at Elimination Chamber of 2017. And then you're in the WrestleMania and you wrestle Randy Orton. You lose the WWE Championship. Okay, you think you're going to get a rematch. That doesn't happen at the next pay-per-view. Not at all. Point being, Bray Wyatt is a victim of bad booking and bad creative from WWE. Of his 2014, from his 2013 run all the way to his 2018 run. Bad creative, bad everything. So he in 2018, he had to take a dip. And then he came back in 2019 around the era of summer. He comes back with the Mr. Rogers slash the fiend gimmick that you were if you were to look up you'll know exactly what you'll know who mr rogers is he came in with a demonic version of mr rogers he came in still with the whole red sweater red sweater and the cheery looking smiley and oh my god boys and girls we're gonna learn something that type of style but he was able to switch into a real serious like possessive and destroyer type thing and then he flipped into the switch mode of the fiend character so whenever the fiend came in and he beat finn balor on summerslam 2019 and his whole entrance was the talk of summerslam nothing outbeat the fiend's whole presentation of summerslam nothing beat it you can go back at summerslam 2019 seth rollins beats brock lesnar for the universal title that doesn't get a bigger pop than The Fiend coming out and doing his entrance. Nothing on that SummerSlam card is as big as The Fiend doing his whole SummerSlam deal. So, the company sees it. They start shooting The Fiend to the moon. Next pay-per-view, he is 
waiting in the wings and he attacks Seth Rollins at the end of that pay-per-view to let him to let the fans know that he is going after the Universal title. He ends up winning the Universal title whenever WWE goes to Saudi. He holds the title. He gets drafted over to SmackDown. He holds the title. He is the feud with Daniel Bryan. It is a good feud. It's great. He ends the feud with Daniel Bryan, and he wins at Royal Rumble of 2020. He loses to Goldberg, and that's whenever the creative took a turn, at least right there in that one little notch, whenever he lost the Universal title to Goldberg. And then you switch it over to he now gets to have a little match, a cinematic masterpiece with John Cena at WrestleMania 2020 of the Firefly Funhouse whenever Bray Wyatt and John Cena come up with this creative cinematic match that straight up picks apart at John Cena, the character of his failures, his insecurities, everything about the John Cena character comes to light in that match and Defiend defeats Bray, well, John Cena in the match and John Cena disappears until he comes back now that you see John Cena now. The Fiend gets out of that rivalry with John Cena, gets into a feud with his former Wyatt member, Braun Strowman, who is now the Universal title. He beats Braun Strowman at SummerSlam 2020 for the Universal title. And then after this, Roman Reigns comes out of nowhere. He makes his shocking re-debut back to WWE in the COVID in the Thunderdome and beats up on Bray Wyatt. And then after this, Bray Wyatt loses the title to Roman Reigns the next week in their triple threat match where Roman went against Braun, went against Bray Wyatt for the Universal title, I believe in a no hold barred match. And at that point, okay, uh, The Fiend is now drafted over to Raw, and you don't see The Fiend that much on Raw. He gets back to a few with Randy Orton. And the last match, fast forwarding it now, the last match that you see is whenever The Fiend is returned back to his new form, well, his old slash new form, because you see the mask got fixed up a little bit, a sharper point to your nose. And he loses to Randy Orton, but he loses because of the distraction of Alexa Bliss, who now has The Fiend mythical powers with her, and she is still using that character to this day, even though Bray Wyatt just got released last Saturday. I know that was a lot for the take in, but I just want to give the backstory and the and just the whole thing for Bray Wyatt before I get into my whole diatribe here, which shouldn't be that long here. Bray Wyatt was a complete uh man, he was a complete character, he was a complete wrestler. You were able to see the picture where he was going. You could see exactly who he wanted to target next. He had a great character. He had a great look. He was made for the main event. He would be the guy that would be able to fulfill that mythical character that the Undertaker character has left open for somebody to fulfill that fulfill that slot. Because somebody needs to fulfill that slot. Aleister Black, Malachi Black in the AEW, would have been a secondary perfect character to fulfill the Undertaker mythical style like character, but Alistair's whole thing doesn't work with mythical magic. Bray Wyatt's whole fiend gimmick does work with mythical magic and mystique and all that type of stuff. So Bray Wyatt's fiend character really would have worked with 
the Undertaker's character and fulfilling that shoe. I'm not saying he would have fulfilled it all the way, but he would have took it a nice distance. Bray Wyatt is a respected person in the locker room, and when that release uh, statement got put out, everybody in the professional wrestling world was shocked by this. Everybody in the WWE, everybody in the fan, everybody that watches as a wrestling fan, it was just a whole thing. He was trending on Twitter. It was weird just to see his name get, like, released. And I just mentioned to you guys last week how WWE doesn't do good storytelling, and the last good storytelling was Bray Wyatt. The whole character, besides the head of the table thing that they're doing with Roman Reigns, but Bray Wyatt's character with The Fiend, he was doing great storytelling, but he hasn't been on WWE television for four months, and now we can understand why. They decided to fire him. And the deal is, it's been speculated, I'm not going to say it's true, so I'll say this allegedly, it's because of budget cuts, because WWE says that Bray Wyatt makes too much money. I think that's a whole bunch of garbage. You shouldn't be cutting people for budget cuts if you don't have it. If you have it in your pocket that you can spare some money, don't not do not cut people for budget cuts. But if you don't have it, then you got to start cutting some people. That's fine. But I mean, you already start cutting mad amounts of people throughout this whole year. You already did like three big budget cut chops with people's names on it. That it makes no sense. How many people you guys, how many people WWE released this year? And now with Bray Wyatt's name get put onto that list, that's ridiculous how WWE let that creative mind literally just fall right through their hands. Bray Wyatt is a creative genius in professional wrestling. He's able to come up with his own character and make people fall in love with it because the people love Bray Wyatt. The people have seen what Bray Wyatt has tr had to combat. The type of creativity, stifleness that WWE has put on Bray Wyatt. And people might, and people, whenever WWE always get out, they always say, I was handcuffed. No, I can literally say Bray Wyatt's character was handcuffed. You can look at the Bray Wyatt character, you could tell, nah, this, this, there's something there that was missing. And they're not taking it all the whole way that it should be taken there. And I believe now, since WWE did release Bray Wyatt, and we're not sure if they did get in contact with him or not back, but if they did, I hope Wyatt did not sign right back with WWE. I'm, I'm hoping not, because this is a showcasing that Bray Wyatt needs that freedom. The man Bray Wyatt, the man underneath the character Bray Wyatt, he has a whole lot of creativity for professional wrestling. He knows how to make characters. He knows what to do. He knows how to mess around to make people believe in what he's telling you. Make people believe what you're saying. And that's all WWE. That's all professional wrestling is. That is all. That is what sports entertainment slash professional wrestling. The sport is you believe in what they're doing. And Bray knows how to make you do that by just listening to him. And then he makes you believe in what he's saying that's the first step you gravitate to what they're saying and then that will make you want to watch and that was one of the matches that my mother will watch Bray Wyatt versus Roman because at the time Bray Wyatt was going against Roman Reigns what I would say ooh 20 yeah 2016 2015 one to two and he got personal with Roman and my mother wanted to watch that match and she watched it and 
my mom's not really much a wrestling fan at the time, and she still isn't isn't much, but she knows who certain people are, but she'll watch it like, oh, this person's on. Okay, cool. She'll watch it just to see the certain person, and Bray and Roman were at the time, though that feud was one that she would sit down and actually watch, and she'll ask me, okay, what happened? Bray was able to make that work. Bray, as a character, was able to make that work, because Roman, at the time, in 2015, 2016, Doubt? No. He was still getting suffering succotash lines from WWE. Crappy lines. He isn't the head of the table guy that we got now. He isn't Mr. Cool Billy Bad that we got now. That ain't the Roman Reigns that we have now that we that was uh, presented in 2015-2016. That wasn't that guy. <laughs> WWE screwed up. So I'm hoping that Bray Wyatt goes into another professional wrestling company, if he still wants to do professional wrestling. Who knows? He might want to do movies. And if he wants to do movies, I guarantee you he'll be great at that because he's able to show off great facial features and he's able to show off and be a completely good horror movie character if he wants to do that. But I'm sticking into the realm of professional wrestling because that's what I know best. If he wants to go to professional wrestling, AEW is a great place for him to go. And shoot, even Impact Wrestling, because Impact Wrestling, even though they might, they won't be able to cover like his big massive contract that WWE did, he'll be able to explore his creative side a whole lot more than he was in WWE. And AEW only already has so many people there that they gotta share the limelight with so many people. And it's already rumored that Punk and Danielson, or Daniel Bryan as you know him, will be going to AEW. So you get those two big main main eventers up there. And you already got the Malachi Black. And now you got Christian Cage going into the main event slot. And you still got Kenny Omega. And you got the Adam Page situation where you want to throw Adam Page. And you still got Chris Jericho and the MJF. I mean, there's only so many main eventers that AEW could put on the top slot. So if Bray were to go there, he's going to get into the main event picture, yeah, sure, but then after a certain point, he's going to not, I'm not going to say he's going to drop, but certain people will be ahead of him, like Punk and Daniel Bryan will be ahead of him, period, I don't care what nobody says, Daniel Bryan and CM Punk are going to be ahead of Bray Wyatt, because Punk is a mythical creature himself, he hasn't wrestled in what, uh, mm, I'll give it seven years, he hasn't wrestled in seven years. If he's coming back into a WWE, coming back into AEW or professional wrestling at all, he hasn't wrestled in seven years. So everybody's clamoring to see Punk in AEW. Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryan, if he goes to AEW, people are going to be clamoring to see him in the main event because guess what? People see Daniel Bryan as Brian Danielson as literally one of the greatest wrestling talents in the world right now. So he's going to be straight up shot into the main event picture. So. I'm just making sure that AEW, if he does go, yes, that's a great opportunity, but he has to level out his options. But if he goes to Impact Wrestling, Impact Wrestling is struggling in the main event picture. Yes, they have Sammy Callahan. They can shoot up W. Morrissey when they want to put him in. Eric Young, he's injured at the moment. Uh, Eddie Edwards, maybe, if they want to do something, but I don't see them wanting to put Eddie Edwards back in the main event picture yet. So, in Moose, he's a main event star caliber athlete, but they're not doing that with Moose. Bray Wyatt's 
character will be able to fit a whole lot much more better into the Impact Wrestling dimension, but Impact Wrestling just is lacking in the dollar amount. If they were great in the dollar amount, if they were able to pay him wealthy, well, if they were able to pay him well, I'll say Impact Wrestling is his perfect fit for Bray Wyatt. But, yet again, I'm just going to end it with this. Bray Wyatt, great character. I would suggest you guys all look up the Bray Wyatt character in WWE. Go back to his 2014 promos. Go back to his 2013 promos. And go back to his Fiend character stuff that he did in 2019. Because when the fans were around, you were able to gauge how much the fans loved the Fiend character. And shoot, even look back at his WrestleMania entrance this year. People loved his WrestleMania entrance and him popping out of the big jack-in-the-box box. People loved it. So again, WWE wasted complete precious time by not pulling the trigger on Bray Wyatt and making him one of their standalone main event guys. WWE wasted talent, and they're going to continue to waste talent if they don't, because they don't know what they're doing at this moment. They know what they're doing with certain people, and certain people, as in like Roman Reigns, Roman Reigns has that on top notch. He's the head of the table. It's hard for you to screw that up. But other than that, they screwed up the Hurt business. They screwed up other like wrestlers in WWE. They screw up Keith Lee in Killer Cross. Sorry, Carrion Cross. It's so hard for you to screw those two guys up, but by God, they were able to figure out a way how to screw them up. Anyway, I said I was not going to be on a long diatribe here. WWE missed the boat on Bray Wyatt, just like they missed the boat on Malachi Black. So, I wish Bray Wyatt the man the best in anything that he does do. And I will be looking for him in WWE, or if he decides to pop into a movie, I'll probably like YouTube his uh, scene that he was in. Because if it's a movie, I'm not too much caring unless it's like an action type flick. That's I'm just gonna be real with you, action flick and all that type of stuff. That's what I'll get into. But even then, he could probably go into the super super uh, hero world and play like a super villain. I can see Bray Wyatt being a super villain. But then again. That's all to uh, him as the man, not uh, Bray Wyatt, the character character. But that has been Wrestling Highlights of the Week. Um, before I let you guys out of here, you can reach me on my social media links on Twitter, at My2Podcast, Instagram, My2CentsPodcastG2. And if you want to email me, My2CentsPod at Yahoo.com. Remember, you can find all episodes of my Saturday episodes of the Wrestling Highlights of the Week and my Sunday episodes on Podbean. Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. On Apple Podcasts, you could leave me any type of star reviews that you want. And also, when you do it, please write down a review to let me know how I could improve this show because I want to make this a better listening experience for the view for the listeners like yourselves. And also, please tune in tomorrow for my Sunday episode whenever I talk about anything and everything whether it be stuff in the news. In this one, I did find some stuff out in the news that I will be talking to you guys about. Um, yeah, this isn't goodbye. This is until you hear from the sweet voice, and more or less, you'll hear the sweet voice tomorrow if you tune in for Sunday's episode. But if you don't, this is until you hear my sweet voice for next Saturday's episode of Wrestling Highlights of the Week. This has been Wrestling Highlights of the Week, presented by My Two Cent Podcast, hosted by G2. 
and I thank you. Bye-bye now. I'm tired, you tired, uh -huh. Jesus wept. Uh -huh.